Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. We have an amazing show today with Erica Bridgeford from the Baltimore Peace Challenge or Ceasefire Baltimore campaign for a weekend free of violence and killing in Baltimore from Friday, August 4th through the end of Sunday, August 6th. But before we get started, I wanted to draw attention to the opening song, The Bird Flu Sports Remix by the late Lore Scuda. And for those who don't know, that's spelled Lore, L-O-R, which is sort of a Baltimore accent for little. In other words, New Orleans has Lil Wayne, we had Lor Scuda. The song came out in the summer of 2014. The Orioles were having an unbelievable breakout season after over a decade of perennial disappointment. Adam Jones and Nick Markakis were having career seasons. Manny Machado was coming into his own as a superstar. The bullpen was unstoppable. Starting pitching was consistent. Manager Buck Showalter was inspiring greatness out of a motley roster of underappreciated players cobbled together by the general manager Dan Duquette. The Orioles would finish first place in the American League East that year, and we all felt like a World Series run was an inevitable part of this new generation of Orioles magic. It was also the last year in memory that the annual murder total in Baltimore would hover around 200. It was still a dangerous city, but we felt like there was a sense maybe things were changing for the better. At that time, Lor Scooter was a trap house rapper who in that season rebranded a song about slaying a mix of scramble coke and smack into an innocent but sincere sports anthem that really saw the magic in that Orioles playoff run. The Orioles season ended abruptly to an equally strong Kansas City Royals team who would go on to lose the World Series to the San Francisco Giants. However, by the next spring, Freddie Gray would die unnecessarily at the hands of Baltimore City Police. And in subsequent protests against the unnecessary killing of Freddie Gray, Orioles fans drinking across the street from Camden Yards would engage these protesters with hostility. The divisions in the city would become all the more apparent, not only in the rioting that followed, but in the skyrocketing murder rate, which came to record levels, and now an annual total that hovers around 350 murders per year in a city of about 620,000. In the aftermath of that rioting, the Orioles would even play a game with zero fans in the stands as the city grappled with an out-of-control situation. Lor Scuda, also known as Tyrese Trayvon Watson, would become active in some efforts to stop the violence. Ultimately, in June of 2016, Scuda was leaving a Pray for Peace in These Streets charity basketball game at Morgan State University when the West Baltimore rapper was ambushed and murdered in Northeast Baltimore apparently in retaliation for acts that he personally probably had little or nothing to do with. In retrospect, that moment of enthusiasm and possibility that inspired Scooter to rebrand his act to support the orange and black of the Orioles represent a lost opportunity. Scooter's ghost now haunts the city. One of almost 10,000 people who have been murdered here since I was born. The madness hasn't stopped. And so we talked to Erica Bridgeford of the Baltimore Peace Challenge to see how we can contribute to at least one summer weekend of peace a cessation of violence in the war on these streets. So, stay tuned. Today I got on orange and my black baseball bat. The 
hoes game on I'm watching on my 60 inch I was born in 93 Cal Ripken was the man You ain't gotta tell me about them old boy I been a fan Frankie Robinson the first to put my team on the mat When I say Oreos I ain't talking about the snack Talking about that orange and black Got a bird on my hat Won the series in 83 I think it's time to go back And you know we won't stop Till we bring that trophy back Already won the Super Bowl World Series up next When we win this championship Don't you be upset So welcome to the knife at the gunfight. Uh, and to get started, can you tell us a, a little bit about the Baltimore ceasefire and why are you taking part in this effort? So the Baltimore ceasefire is a citywide call from Baltimore residents to Baltimore residents asking for no violence from August 4th through August 6th. It is also a citywide call asking people to celebrate life that weekend on purpose. And so whatever that means, small events or going to visit your grandma or organizing really big events. And so those are the those are the two pieces of the Baltimore ceasefire and Baltimore Peace Challenge. Um, and the reason that we're doing it is because we're hurting, you know, <laughs> we're hurting, we're tired, we're exhausted, we're traumatized, and we still have a lot of hope. And so um, in a space where it looks like there's nothing we can do personally about violence, because there are so many systemic reasons why we have violence all over America, and Baltimore is no different, we need a way of remembering that we actually have power and that we can decide to have peace. And especially if we do it together and if we say it out loud to one another. And what does that work look like? How have you been preparing for this or calling for it? Okay, so um, intentionally we started in May with a date scheduled for the ceasefire in August to, to get the word out. There are 630,000 people in Baltimore. And so the goal really for us, what success looks like, that there are very few people in Baltimore who by August 4th will be able to say that they have not heard about it. And so the goal is for as many people to at least know about it, be having conversations about it, even if they're debating it and saying that they think it's stupid, that's great. At least that means you've heard about it and you're at least thinking about if it's even possible to purposely have peace. Um, and so we have, we've had two public meetings each month for people to come together to talk about what they were going to be doing to do outreach what resources they needed, how they were going to be connecting with one another to provide resources that people needed as we came across, you know, people in the outreach. Um, we immediately set up a PayPal so that people could give money so that we could buy flyers and posters and tape and staple guns so that people, we could not run out of flyers and posters. There's been a, um, a space where people can come to pick up 
stuff that they want, as many flyers and posters as they want, so that people have been doing their own outreach and owning the effort. Um, and that's how the media even caught on. We sent out the press release in May, and nobody was checking for us, basically. We were told that people would call us back maybe on the 6th or the 7th to see how things went. But, no, you know, there, there one, um, one radio station did reach out just to ask who, who was behind it. And so that made us, you know, kind of really get in conversations with them to get a meeting scheduled. But even then, they didn't schedule our meeting until July 6th for us to go and talk to them about how they were going to help let everybody know about this effort. So Baltimore community members and people who love Baltimore just started doing the work and they did it so much that it got on the media's radar that you were seeing and hearing about this Baltimore ceasefire thing in all of these different places that you might go. And so that's, that was very intentional. That is not about one person or one organization. It is about Baltimore and people who love Baltimore. You've been doing a lot of outreach uh, with uh, people in, I guess, your organization or your partners with flyers going to neighborhoods, finally the media sort of caught on. I know I've heard you on a couple of Morgan State radio shows, including Mark Steiner. Where where have you been going to to give out flyers and to talk to people face-to-face? Well, personally, I have been going all over Baltimore. So, like, so... Sometimes I've purposely scheduled time in my day to go into certain neighborhoods, Sandtown, Winchester, um, places over on in East Baltimore, Bel Air and Erdman, uh, where I grew up in Zone 16, Poplar Grove and Bloomingdale area. But then just in my travels, if I see a lot of abandoned buildings, I just jump out of my car and put up a bunch of posters. <laughs> or if I see, a, you know, if I'm driving around and I see, oh, people are out, then I'm just jumping out on corners and open-air drug markets and bus stops and, you know, wherever I see people. Um, if, I'm in, if I'm shopping and I'm in a store in a mall, I keep flyers in my bag so that I'm handing them to people while I'm out running errands. And I think that's what a lot of people have been doing. So um, the Baltimore ceasefire is not an organization it's an effort and so everybody um and there have been a lot of people who have come and picked up as many flyers and posters as they want so that they are doing their own personal outreach with their organization either scheduling days where they go out or you know they're randomly talking to people in their communities as well so i think that's what's making it um, such an impactful thing in Baltimore. There's a culture shift where people yeah. are realizing that, you know, we're getting to see and feel what it is like when a whole lot of people are thinking the same thing and doing the same thing at the same time. Because everybody is not killing, you know. The, the murder is horrible and it's impactful, but there's a lot more not violence happening than there is violence. And so for, for a lot of people to be purposely pushing peace forward, we're getting to see what that feels like. And, uh, for example, when you're in Sandtown, Winchester, what is the responses you're getting from people? What is that interaction like? Um, so there's there's a mixed response. Overwhelmingly, people are really grateful that somebody is trying to do it. So you'll hear people say things like, wow. 
this is this would be really great if we could go for three whole days. Yes, somebody needs to do this because my cousin just died or I just lost my son last year or, you know, things like that. And even when people laugh at it and they go, good luck with that, I don't think that's going to work, you know, everybody, somebody is going to kill somebody, then our response is, okay, don't worry about what other people are going to do. The question is, are you saying that you can't keep around here safe? Are you saying you can't keep this six block radius safe? And then they go, oh, no, no, I'm so, we straight around here. We're, as I'm going to talk to my boys, I'm going to talk to, you know, my neighbors or my family. We're going to make sure we keep it safe here. I'm just saying, you know, people in other parts of the city might not do it. And so we say, okay, well, it's about personal responsibility. And you're right, it, there may be violence other places. But what matters is, like you're saying, there won't be violence around here. So this neighborhood has accepted the peace challenge. You you, you and your crew has accepted the peace challenge, and that's what matters. And so I don't think people think about it that way at first and so when we often leave people like we hear people having conversations about well it's so-and-so's birthday that weekend too we can throw a party or you know and so and why have you decided to um put so much of your own effort and time into this project well personally because i have been impacted by violence a lot i've been going to funerals since i was 12 um, the first time I lost a friend, I was 12 years old, and I uh, heard him get shot. I watched him fall on blacktop. I watched him crying and begging God not to let him die as he waited for the ambulance. I saw the ambulance come and pick him up and take him away. And then when I came home from school the next day, I was um, in Roland Park at the time. When I came home from school the next day, I found out he had died. And that was just the beginning and his name was Mike, and that was just the beginning of, like, funerals I was going to attend right. because people were getting killed. Then in 2001, one of my brothers was shot by a friend. He was dead on arrival, and he ended up surviving, but that was very traumatic for our family. Um, we were grateful that he lived. And then in 2007, one of my other brothers was murdered in January. Wow. And so, you know, so it's... it's I lived, and one of my stepsons was murdered. Uh, two of my my first cousins have been murdered. Countless second and third cousins. So I go to about three funerals a year, and there has been years where I've attended two funerals in one day because of murder. Right. I uh, I think for a lot of people that don't live or don't spend a lot of time in Baltimore, even parts of Baltimore most affected, it's hard to really wrap your head around the magnitude of the violence and I've often felt like the city is haunted by you know I, I did the math and something like 9400 people have been murdered in Baltimore since I was born I wow. definitely think that perspective is you know you're not the only one who who feels that and sees it so I think it's you know I'm very grateful that you're speaking on it and I think you make an interesting point do you you know you really think there's a cultural shift that may be going on around these kind of conversations? Yeah, that's what it feels like because what we said to people from the beginning um, from an organizing perspective is don't just hand people a flyer and tell them about the ceasefire. Have conversations with people. Look them in their eyes. Talk about, you know, what kind of things are they dealing with because as you listen to people, you probably know about three or four resources that you can point them to to help them with things that they're experiencing right in that moment. Um, and so... 
people are talking about root causes of violence. Mm -hmm. People, because people are coming to the public meetings and connecting on social media, they are finding out about efforts that have already been happening in Baltimore that they didn't know about, and they were doing either similar work or Mm -hmm. um, working with similar populations, and now they're connected and able to pull their resources and support one another's work. Um, People are talking so much about the trauma. Right. Um, you know, we have these conversations and silos, you know, that, you know, <laughs> about just how how much unhealed trauma there is in Baltimore. Um, it is very easy in our society to other people, you know, to treat them as if they're something other. And so in doing that, you get to not notice that it is very hard to find what you would call an offender who wasn't first a victim of a lot of things before they became an offender. A history of trauma. Um, and so, right, yes. And so, um, and so people are walking around with a lot of unhealed trauma from things they've seen in childhood or things they've had to endure. Um, and so, and just from some, there, there is some trauma associated with being of color in America mm-hmm. and what the kinds of opportunities that are snatched from you and the way that you're treated and all kinds of things. And so we often don't call it trauma because we just call it life and we keep pushing through it and we keep burying it, you know, or we, or we do what we can to try to self, um, self-medicate or right. self-heal in different ways. Um, and often there are things that we need that we don't get because we don't even know that is trauma. When you start talking about that there is hope, then you start talking about why you even need to have hope in the first place. And so that is a shift. Definitely. And I have seen events during my lifetime that seem to shift the paradigm for the worse in this city. I think of the killing of the Dawson family and Oliver, or the killing of Freddie Gray more recently, the murder of Lor Scuda. And uh, just very recently, the murder of Charmaine Wilson, who was uh, a mother trying to involve police to address the bullying of her children in southwest Baltimore, who was killed in retaliation, apparently. But I don't think we have as keen an eye for what can shift the paradigm for the better, you know, away from the normalization of violence. So I'm very grateful for your efforts and hope that they are making a difference. Uh, And it's similar to some of the work that have been done from other organizations um, including some that shared the name Ceasefire. Are you familiar with uh, stuff that was done in the 90s with Ceasefire Boston? or? Um, yes, Chicago? yeah, I know that there's the Safe Streets model now correct, in correct. Baltimore. And that's mm-hmm. based on that same. Are you drawing on that history and that tradition in calling this Ceasefire? Well, there, those kinds of traditions are about like interrupting violence right as correct. it's happening. Um, and so... What I, what the goal of this is, is to, like, it is the technical term of a ceasefire, that there is a particular time where people are purposely either calling a truce if they have some kind of beef, beef with somebody else, or a time when people are purposely not committing any violence and purposely doing peaceful things and building community with one another. And so what that has meant is that we have asked everybody who does any kind of violence prevention or peace work to do what they do to help promote this particular weekend, you know, to say that this is a thing that is happening 
um, because we know that there are so many organizations in Baltimore already doing work to address violence. And so it is meant that Safe Street has come and gotten flyers and they want posters and, you know, and, and Out for Justice is like doing so much work to do outreach, but also like during the ceasefire weekend, Out for Justice is going to be staying outside overnight in the Irvington community on Friday and Saturday night, bringing lawyers and counselors and social workers and therapists and four hour shifts to give people in that community advice about expungement and, and their child support cases and therapy that they need and addressing their trauma and, you know, like just bringing, like setting up camp from 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. Friday and Saturday. And that's just one of the things off at the top of my head about mm-hmm. the kinds of things that are happening, you know. And so, like, when you say the, like, traumatic things that have happened that have been paradigm shift for you, I was, my mom was just telling me yesterday how afraid she was watching a YouTube video that I put up when Sandra Bland, what I believe to be, was murdered. And I was very angry, and I made this YouTube video saying to whatever powers that be that think it's okay to keep creating and nurturing systems that are designed to just beat us into the ground and cause our uh, extinction. And and because because I have been in the same position as Sandra Bland. I was arrested in Frederick when I was at Hood College when a, at the time when the police force in Frederick County, I don't think had any black officers. Um, and I was arrested for just being angry because somebody threw a pole at me. Somebody who did not live on campus threw a pole because they were in the middle of fighting with some other guys. And when the, and we called the police, and when the police came, they instead found black women who, who seemed too hysterical to arrest, where we called them for protection. And then they were angry with me and, and mischaracterized me in the, in the newspaper saying that I was so aggressive and so verbally violent that the police were afraid of me. Now, mind you, I have one hand and they literally had to like handcuff my one hand to my belt loop. So, like, you know, I don't think that as a 19-year-old, whatever age I was at the time, black girl, I was a match for five police officers who surrounded me and arrested me at the time. Um, and so, and I was very vocal in the police car and when I got to the police station. And so to see Sandra Bland be in that same kind of situation and end up dead in her jail cell, I was completely outraged and hurt. And I made a video saying you have now woken me up and I am not going to be afraid to do and be everything that I want to be in this world. And I believe that that shifted me. I was already what people would call courageous. I was already doing a lot of work. Um, but it was that inst- that incident, I think, gave me the courage to do things like say out loud to other people, don't y'all want to call the ceasefire? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we do that? Even though it looks crazy, isn't that something we can do? Well, Erica, I know you have to go, but I want to make sure I thank you for your efforts uh, and say, you know, I think your experiences are so important and your voice is so valuable to the city. And that's why I think it's resonating with people all across the city and beyond. So I want to make sure I thank you and encourage you as you speak your truth. Uh, down from Baltimore, you say you was, I never see you What part you on? I got some family on the Alameda I love my city, that's about me and I bet they know me My name good in any hood I hunger 
I caught up with Erica off the air. I wanted to add a couple of things from that conversation. Uh, I asked, you know, what happens next after this weekend, and I found two interesting things about her answer. First of all, all the groups and individuals that have worked together for this weekend ceasefire will, of course, follow up and continue their work together in some capacity. So I hope this networking makes anti-violence work across the city more effective in the long term. But more than that, the ceasefire organizers are also gathering resources, including money, financial resources to, to support the families of anyone who's killed or seriously affected by violence during this weekend. The idea is to surround these families with love and support, uh, including the financial support to pay for the costs of burying a loved one. She pointed out how important this kind of love and support was in her own family as they were grieving even as they were unable to clearly see or articulate what their needs were. So we will make sure to link to these efforts for anyone who wants to donate support. We also got her reading and music recommendations. And you can tell we are part of the same movement because her book recommendation was Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the same recommendation as my previous guest and good friend of the knife, Dr. Damon Mullins. Her music recommendation was the Baltimore artist E.Z. Jackson. My recommendation to her is someone that you may recognize from previous episodes, Son of None, and his work with Firebrand Records, It's Like That. Most importantly, I wanted to recommend to all my listeners, Devin Allen's upcoming photography book about Baltimore, Beautiful Ghetto, which should be released any day now, and I have on pre-order. His work during the height of the 2015 Baltimore Uprising riots was featured in Time magazine. Now, she also told me she's a big old-school hip-hop fan, so in the spirit of that, I want to share some new music from an old hip-hop head that I think she'll appreciate. You have once been a criminal. Politics is a pile of tricks and kids. What do we get out of it? More chatter, more gun splatter, more dumb rappers and dumb athletes and actors. My name's Revolution. Open your eyes. I'm not on TV because the revolution will not be televised. They tell it lies. We better rise and get a plan. The U.S. president, he's endorsed by the Klan. Damn, you don't understand what's going on. Slavery coming back, and most of y'all just gonna go along. The past couple of weeks also saw a showdown in the Baltimore City Council over a proposed law instituting a mandatory minimum sentencing for handgun violations. The hearing became heated as a group of people waiting for hours to testify were put to the back of the hearing schedule in favor of a trauma surgeon, himself a survivor of gun violence. In the scuffle that followed, the speaker's podium was knocked to the ground in front of the surgeon and two people were arrested. While there was, uh, seemed to be no objection to the content of the surgeon's testimony, there was so much animosity from the process and the proposal. And this proposal was relying on the criminal justice system and that whole industrial complex to combat violence. One problem with this proposal is that there's actually no good evidence that this will decrease violence. A review of the academic public health and policy literature on this topic does not show that there is any benefit with regards to violence when it comes to mandatory minimum sentencing. 
However, mandatory minimums have been associated to great harm to individuals and communities with high rates of incarceration. At best, implementation of such policy should probably be done as part of a protocol to study the effects as if it were instituting a high-risk experimental medication. However, the situation in Baltimore is not at best. It's much worse. After the 2015 killing of Freddie Gray, the officers involved were charged en masse, but the responsible parties were never really held accountable. Furthermore, a crew of crooked Baltimore City police have since faced federal charges of racketeering and armed robbery while on the job, with some taking guilty pleas. Furthermore, numerous body camera videos are now coming to light that appear to show Baltimore City police planting evidence on suspects. There is a crisis of confidence in the Baltimore City Police Department and its leadership, including the FOP, but also with the entire political establishment in Baltimore. Even more than that, the segregation and separation in the city, not simply racial, but also between those with institutional power and those without, is definitely worsening. We've been unable to really speak to each other and to find common ground and build a common future. Our spaces in which we could work together have become the chaos of that city council hearing. The city needs truth and reconciliation. And I hope that the ceasefire Baltimore and Baltimore Peace Challenge can be part of that. So I want to send my love and support to this effort, but also to this city, my city as a whole. I see you, Baltimore, and I love you. This one right here is going out to everybody that lost somebody. Everybody that loves somebody. This one right here is going out to the whole world. DJ Tamil, yours truly Diamond K. K-Swift, we love you, girl. Girl, 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 girl. You have to go. So soon If you love somebody, come on, put your hands up And if you lost somebody, come on, put your hands up If you love somebody Thanks for tuning in. The music on this podcast episode started with that bird flu sports remix from the late Lor Scuda, one of the many ghosts that haunt this town, followed by a clip from Tate Cobang's bankroll. Then You Ain't Got Time, the new KRS uh, track from the album The World Is Mind from this year, then was For the Ones We Lost from the Club Queen, the K Swift Story album. And we'll close out with a track by Easy Jackson, Unapologetically Black. So, thanks for joining us. Hope you'll tune in again next time. Unapologetically Black. Yeah. Unapologetically Black. Like them white boys who voted for Donald Trump The imagery you give of me and mine ain't fact though Everything I ever knew to be the greatest was black hope From Malcolm to Satchmo From the city to back roads My people made cuisine when they threw us them scraps though Put me in schools with old books and no heat inside My black teachers had us memorized and still I rise in the black national anthem Young, black, and handsome The best way to describe Miss Catherine Grandson Descendant of a beautiful hue that you can't bleach Speak the language of them naughty hit boys that you can't reach you lame if you think you're killing my spirit, my illadiligence Shame that you just can't see it, blinded by privilege Fist raised, head high, I'm ready for attack The sleeping giant is woke and he is unapologetically black Yeah, mm. unapologetically black